Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. I was listening the other day to gospel music on XM. I was doing several things at the same time when I was suddenly aware that I was being strongly attracted to the southern gospel song that was being aired at that moment. Let me suggest to you that it is clear to me that the Holy Spirit, who resides within me, was being drawn to the lyrics of that particular song. My spirit, therefore, also responded in a significant way. As I share this with you, I can still remember the deep emotion that grabbed hold of me. Have you ever had an experience such as the one that I've just described? It may not have been music. It may have been an encounter with another person. But a moment when your spirit joins with God's spirit to bring you a moment of truth or comfort. Often this happens when we are in distress or facing difficult circumstances. It is often during these times that you feel a special bond with the Heavenly Father. I had earlier been watching the Gaither DVD featuring a concert that they held in Jerusalem. This was a moving time and perhaps this experience prepared my heart for this nudge from the Spirit. I had moved on to other things at that time, so the moment with this song was a particularly unique time, not directly related to the DVD at all. I suppose it was the refrain that has been the longest lasting emotion. The words of the refrain have stayed with me, and even now as I write these words for the broadcast, I am impressed to share them with you. It may be that the Lord has been preparing your own heart to identify with the phrase that I want to leave with you with a few remarks. After our first song call, I will share this phrase with you, and we will let the Spirit convict each one as he wills.
Now, about that refrain and the phrase that has been of particular interest to me and I hope will bring a message to your own heart this morning. The song, and especially the refrain, used five words to summarize the point of the song. The songwriter composed this significant song, a song that has captivated my heart these several hours now. Those five words are a trophy of his grace. Now, you know the gist of the songwriter's heart. The song essentially outlined many reasons why, in his tremendous love and undeserved grace, God chooses to love and to use us in his service. Unworthy though we are. Scripture tells us that the angels who serve God would like to know more about this great mystery, that the Creator would die for his creation. In spite of our unworthiness, God holds us up as his trophies, but we know only too well sometimes that this is all because of God's amazing grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, we often say. The hymn comes to mind. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. What a wonderful God we serve. We are redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in our hands we can bring. Simply to his cross we must cling. Yet he holds us forth as trophies. The dictionary defines a trophy as a token of victory. When Christ died on the cross, he shouted in the darkness, It is finished. In other words, the atoning work was done. God's acceptance of his perfect son as a substitute for all mankind. Now I must ask you, if all this is true, and I say that it is, are you a good trophy? Are you grateful for what God has done for us, for you? Think about that this morning.
And now with his message for today, here is our pastor, Alan Lee. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus think of divorce and remarriage? That's the question we are continuing to answer as we move along in our series entitled, What Does Jesus Think? Our thesis being that Jesus, as Lord of our lives, not only expects, but demands that we both think and live out in our lives his thoughts on the issues of life that confront us on a day-by-day basis. Our text is the teaching of Jesus as recorded in the book of Matthew that we traditionally call the Sermon on the Mount. However, as mentioned last time in an earlier message, I prefer the designation, the teaching on the Mount. You see, it covers three chapters in the book of Matthew, five, six, and seven. Jesus tells us what he thinks about divorce and remarriage in verses 31 through 32. Please listen as I read that passage from the King James Version of the Bible. Quote, It hath been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. End of quote. Now, what we have determined so far in our exposition of these teachings of Jesus Christ on marriage and remarriage and divorce may be summarized under four points. First, the traditional Jewish view of divorce was that the act was not adulterous. Jesus' view, however, was that the act was in fact adulterous. Second, divorce without pornea, which is the Greek word translated fornication in the King James Version, causes adultery of the spouse divorced. Third, on the other hand, divorce with porneia does not cause adultery. And fourth, marriage to a divorced person is always adultery. Now, Jesus gives a fuller discussion of the same issue in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now, here are some of the salient facts and derived implication from this passage. By the way, this is a little involved, and if you're interested in studying this in detail, we have a little booklet entitled Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. You can call the church if you'd like to get information on it. But here are some of the facts derived from this passage. First, historically and politically speaking, according to verse 1, Jesus is in the jurisdiction of Herod Antiochus who had divorced his wife and married his niece, the former wife of his brother, Philip. If you recall, John the baptizer had denounced this marriage as being unlawful, that is, against the law of Moses. Now, as you know, John literally lost his head because of his denouncement of this marriage. It is most likely that John was alluding to the prohibitions of incest as given in the book of the law in Leviticus especially, chapters 18 and 20, as the basis for his condemnation of this royal peers' association. Secondly, religiously speaking, the Pharisees were attempting to trap Jesus with the question on divorce on the law of Moses. Verse 3 very clearly states this. The interesting thing is that they already knew Jesus' position on divorce. 
He had explained it to them in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 that we just read. They also knew that it was this position that condemned Herod and Herodias. And so they more than likely were setting a trap for Jesus to be arrested and killed by Herod as John was. In addition to this, Jesus' position was also contrary to the views of the two prominent rabbis of the day. There was Hillel. He was a liberal rabbi who taught that divorce was legitimate for any cause. Today we would say divorce, no fault. Then there was Shammai. He was a conservative and taught that divorce was legitimate only for sexual immorality and especially adultery. The Pharisees were therefore asking Jesus, what side of this controversy are you on? Now, as we saw in our last message, the disputed passage for both positions was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, this passage assumes and acknowledges and even allows divorce, but it does not command divorce. The legislation in the passage was not the grounds for granting divorce, but rather it, is for, it was for prohibiting the remarriage of a wife to her former husband if she had remarried a second husband following her original divorce. In other words, the focus of the passage was on remarriage, not divorce. Now, Jesus' reply to the Pharisees' first question is given in verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 19. You'll notice that he bypasses altogether their reference to Deuteronomy 24, and he goes back to the creation of the marriage union in Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. This is what the passage says. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce. That's the meaning of let no man separate, let no man divorce. Jesus reaffirms the one flesh union concept between husband and wife consistently, uh, as does the Old Testament. He specifically commands against divorce for any reason. He says, let no one divorce. And now in response to Jesus' answers, the Pharisees pose a second question for clarification. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And divorce her. It is apparent that they understood that Jesus was teaching that the marriage union could not be broken even though a divorce had taken place. It is also apparent that they understood that Jesus was therefore prohibiting all the divorce for any reason up to this point. They were therefore questioning the reason for Moses legislating the necessity for giving a divorced wife a bill of divorcement. In other words, they assumed that the bill of divorcement dissolved the marriage union because it allowed for the remarriage of the divorced wife. That was the point. Now, Jesus responded to them in verses 8 and 9. He stated that Moses did not command divorce, but simply acknowledged and accommodated its practice in order to make it more tolerable for the wives who were being abused. This is what it says. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, 
whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Notice several things in this reply. First, Moses allowed divorce because of the extreme sinfulness of the husbands. In other words, they were so morally corrupt that they treated their wives with complete lack of feeling for their welfare. They treated them as things they own, as chattel. Secondly, divorce was never the intention or the will of God. Jesus is very clear on that. And then he says, divorce except for poneia, that's the Greek word, is always wrong, but not always adulterous. Now, that's an important point here. He says that divorce except for poneia is always wrong, but it is not always adultery. However, he says, remarriage after any divorce is always adulterous. That's verse 9. Jesus' pronouncement here is authoritative. We must remember that. He says, but I say unto you, meaning my command supersedes that of Moses. He says, whosoever shall divorce his wife for Poneia shall not commit adultery. But whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, regardless of the bill of divorcement. And finally, he says, whosoever marries a divorced wife commits adultery. These are all final authoritative pronouncements of Jesus Christ. This is what he thinks of divorce and remarriage. It is clear that the key to understanding the so-called exception clause stipulated by Jesus is to understand the meaning of the Greek word porneia, which is used in verse 9. It is translated in the various versions as fornication, adultery, unchastity, marital unfaithfulness, and sexual immorality. Most Christians accept the meaning as being adultery only, as does the courts here, because they allow divorce on the basis of adultery. However, Greek lexicons, or dictionaries, tell us that the word refers to all kinds of unlawful sexual immorality, including adultery, prostitution, fornication, homosexuality, and incest. And so while the Greek word poneia could mean adultery, it does not have to mean adultery, and it is not always used to mean adultery. The context in which the word is used must decide its specific meaning in that context in which it is used. I want to give five reasons why I believe that porneia cannot mean adultery in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, and therefore it cannot be used as a biblical basis for divorce. First, it contradicts Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18, which do not contain the exception clause. You see, the Roman readers of Mark's gospel and the Greek and Gentile readers of Luke's gospel would not have known of this exception recorded only in Matthew's gospel, especially for the Jewish readers. They would have understood Jesus to be teaching that divorce and remarriage is adulterous without exception. Therefore, this has to be seen as something that is meant specifically for the Jews under their law. Secondly, it contradicts Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19.6, where he specifically states what God has united, let no one divorce. Thirdly, it would not be any more strict than Rabbi Shammai's teaching and would therefore not account for the shock surprise of his disciples in Matthew 19.10. 
nor would it go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus demands of his disciples. Fourthly, it contradicts Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, where he specifically states that he is teaching the Lord's commands and then proceeds to command that neither the husband or the wife is to divorce their mate. Fifth, porneia is not the normal or specific word for adultery in the Bible. That Greek word is mochia, M-O-I-C-H-E-I-A. The distinction in their meaning is evidence in the usage throughout the Bible in the same verse or context to describe two different types of sin. For instance, in Matthew 15, 19, Mark 7, 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 19, Hebrews 13, 4. You see, this same distinction must be understood in Matthew 5, 32 and 19. Something other than adultery must be meant or the two different Greek words would not have been used in the same sentence to mean the same thing. Only one specific act is ascribed as porneia in the New Testament, and that is the sin of an incestuous marriage. It is used on two occasions, in Acts 15, verses 21 and 29, and Acts chapter 21, verse 5. It is used again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, where it is used to describe one having his father's wife. The conclusion, therefore, is that porneia in Matthew 5, 32, and 99 cannot and does not mean adultery in these contexts. The most probable meaning supported in the New Testament is that it is a technical term referring to incestuous or natural one-flesh marriages as prohibited in Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8. This keeps Jesus consistent with both the Old and New Testament teaching regarding the one flesh by marriage concept. His righteousness, greater than that of the Pharisees' emphasis, and the startled response of the disciples seems to make this a true interpretation. It is also supported by Jesus' words to the disciples in verse 12 of Matthew 19. However, another possible meaning, although it is not specifically called porneia, may be unfaithfulness during the Jewish betrothal period, as illustrated in the case of Mary and Joseph. In summary, then, the exception clause in Matthew 5, 32 and 99 does not and cannot refer to adultery, but rather either to the incestuous marriage or to unfaithfulness during the Jewish betrothal period. This is a very complex subject, I agree with you. If you'd like further help on it, I encourage you to call the church for our booklet called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think, and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. 
Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. There forevermore to stay. The great commander's promise, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. in a moment Jesus Christ could come again